It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Political Party, this one featuring Labour's David Lammy. This was recorded uh, a few weeks ago, um, so it was before the proper mayhem of the campaign had started. It was just right at the start uh, of the campaign. It's been an incredible few weeks. I hope you've enjoyed it and uh, indeed are going to vote. If you listen to this on polling day, um, or indeed if you listen to it afterwards, I hope you're enjoying whatever madness is currently engulfing Westminster. Um, well, enjoy the show. David Lammy, by the way, he's absolutely wonderful. I'd already interviewed Tessa Jow, one of the other um, candidates for the Labour nomination for London Mayor, who I absolutely loved, and David Lammy is uh, very funny indeed, uh, with a couple of risque comments as well. Uh, he was very good fun, so enjoy the show. Hello, good evening. Hello, is this on? Hello, it is now. I feel like I've gone mad. Hello, welcome to the political party. Hey, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Hey. Excellent, give me a cheer if this is your first time. Hey. Okay, excellent. Welcome newcomers, welcome... Uh, do you say oldcomers? I'm not sure you do. Welcome regulars would be the, would be the better word. Uh, today was the last pro- uh, Promises Question time before the election. Did anyone watch it? Yes. Yeah. yeah? What did you make of it? Grim uh, was the, uh, was the, uh, was the uh, assessment over here. It was pretty awful, wasn't it? What was incredible, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you'll have heard about this, uh, Ed Miliband had decided that he was going to ask David Cameron about VAT. But Ed Miliband had already decided what answer he thought he was going to get. <laughs> and he didn't get that answer. <laughs> so he stood there for five questions thinking, I think I've just been knocked out. <laughs> it was the most incredible thing. He gets up and goes, earlier in the week, uh, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister said that he would give a straight answer to a straight question. Uh, so come on, tell us straight answer to a straight question. Will he categorically uh, rule out raising VAT if he's Prime Minister in the next Parliament. And Cameron just gets on and goes, straight answer to a straight question, the answer's yes. And you just, <laughs> so this immediate bit where it's like, I thought someone had paused the House of Commons. It looked like no one moved, just so everyone on the Labour benches go, shit. <laughs> and then there was a bit where Ed balls, it was really funny, Ed, Ed Miliband just has to say things, oh look, the council just aren't going to believe it, Mr Speaker, and try to sort of get through it. Ed Balls sits there and the ex- watch it back on the iPlayer, the expression on his face is almost like really sporting bullishness. He just sort of raises his chin and blinks like that. <laughs> like a man who's just bet his daughter's inheritance on a game of poker and lost. <laughs> He's just going... <laughs> <laughs> almost expected Ed Balls to go, fair play, live by the sword. <laughs> Die by the sword. Can tell you almost like bizarrely respected it. Um, Cameron today was very odd because he's obviously acutely aware. Cameron, it could be his last Prime Minister's question time as Prime Minister. So it was, it was odd in his head. He must have sort of been thinking this is kind of a farewell, but he's still trying to be bullish in the run up to the election. And there are times where almost within the same sentence, real beautiful manners towards MPs that were departing, towards people who'd asked sort of decent questions, people from other parties. And then there was always like a sort of it was like Jekyll and Hyde in the same sentence. There was always like a sting in the tail at the end. So people would ask you a question and go, and might I just say, as it's the last time and that I will face him in this place, what a 
excellent constituency MP he has been. He has served in this House with distinction. I know for many years we've been on different sides of the House of Commons, but for many years he's been a great uh, ambassador for his people. think, oh, that's lovely. And they go, unlike the set of Muppets, sat on the front bench opposite. <laughs> this is incredible. Like there was one bit. Some of the put-downs in there were incredible. Uh, Stephen Pound, the Labour MP, got up and he says, uh, um, for many months uh, we've been calling the Prime Minister chicken, uh, but now that he's announced he won't serve a full third term, isn't he now a lame duck? And they all go, that's so funny because he mentioned two animals. It's so, <laughs> so funny in the Commons sometimes. <laughs> he goes, never mind a lame duck. I think we're looking at Alex Salmon's poodle. And he's like, bosh. He's like, shit, I wish I hadn't asked that now. We're going to look a right fool. Um, it's just odd that when Cameron does it, he always is very nice to the person, but then in the answer will slag off Ed Miliband through the person. It's like a sort of dysfunctional parent arguing through a child. Don't worry, you'll be dead good at school. I think you're dead clever. Oh, you're going to show all those people that you're not like your father. That lazy fucker upstairs. Go on, off you go. All the best to the next parliament. The budget was bizarre as well. Did anyone watch the budget live? Just a few of us, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I love watching all that stuff live, right? Uh, because, well, I'm obviously a fucking loser. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, it's, it's like cup final day for me. I'm like, budget, brilliant. Four pack of Fosters, nibbles, wasabi peas. <laughs> lads, lads, lads. Watching the budget. I, I don't know if anyone else got this impression. George Osborne at one point was just saying the word choose over and over again. They're going, we choose economic prosperity. We choose a long-term economic plan. I thought any point it's going to go, we choose life, we choose a job, we choose a fucking big television. <laughs> uh, suddenly he didn't. Um, there, was a, what, there was some bits where I thought he was setting up for like a rhyme and then he wouldn't do it. Or like a catchphrase, he'd go, we're out of the red and in the black, Britain is paying its way in the world. Like, <laughs> almost sounded like bullseye. <laughs> Just go for it. Just, but then you think you can't have like big political things rhyming. Like, it undermines it, doesn't it? If Blair would have gone, she was the people's princess, and we never expected, frankly, anything less. <laughs> but in Paris last night, we all got a fright. My God, what an awful mess. Who <laughs> said this is despicable? Not only is he mourning, he's made it rhyme. This is evil. Uh, there was a very odd thing as well that uh, Osborne did. Well, Miliband's... To be fair to Miliband, it's a very difficult gig doing the response to the budget, because obviously the budget has been planned for months and written for months, and then Miliband's just sort of got to ad lib a response to that, and he's Ed Miliband. <laughs> Very difficult for him. It gets his feet. And there was one bit where, he, well, what I feel for him sometimes, because he has really good lines, but then he doesn't know what to do afterwards. It's like someone in football who puts a really good pass in, you go, brilliant. Well, follow it then. He goes, oh, God. Oh. So, like, he's so overwhelmed that he's put in a perfect ball, he then doesn't know what to do next. There's a bit, and he went, I, I look at the Lib Dems stuck in the boot with the Tories. And I went, yeah, and he went, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. Just keep talking, Ed, you're on a roll, mate. He won't even heckles himself. <laughs> Very frustrating. Um, Miliband had that awful line. Well. You know when you hear a politician say a really old line, but they say like, they're the only people who've ever said it? Like, during the referendum, the amount of MPs that said, oh, yeah, there are, uh, <laughs> there are more pandas in Scotland than Tory MPs. <laughs> like, they'd invented that line. I was like, we've heard it 500 times, mate. There are more laughs in Scotland than that joke. <laughs> this is awful. This is tragic. Like, move on. Miliband had one. He goes, uh, 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 I'll, t I'll talk to the mayor of Liverpool this week. Uh, and he said that the Tory cuts were so savage, 
He said, at least Dick Turpin wore a mask. <laughs> that is one of the oldest... Like, the, the, the problem I have with that phrase is, I don't think the logic works. Like, why would you be happy that Turpin had hid his identity? Like, why is that seen as a good thing? If anything, the mask was a, a real problem. Like, surely the phrase should have been, at least Dick Turpin showed his face. That's how we were able to catch him. <laughs> I can't help feeling that, like, the crimes that we're referencing with our clichés need updating. Like, Turpin was a long time ago. <laughs> I wonder if in a few years' time we would say, at least Bin Laden grew a beard. <laughs> wonder if the logic of it doesn't make any sense. Oh, thank God those burglars didn't leave any fingerprints. Very good of them. Well, they've been possible to catch. What lovely honourable men. Uh, of course, there wasn't just one budget this year, there were two. Uh, there was a real budget, and then there was Danny Alexander's toy budget for beginners. They came in a lovely yellow lunchbox. I don't know if you saw this, you might have seen the pictures. The Lib Dems basically did an alternative budget. Was it later in the day or the following day? Danny Alexander on his own outside the Treasury with a big yellow box. Look, it, yellow's not a good colour for stuff. There's a reason why all the other colours were gone by the time the Lib Dems chose theirs. <laughs> Yellow looks septic, it looks luminous, it looks like a toy box. He stands there and it's the little, if you watch the videos, as I have, all of them on YouTube, there's a bit where Daddy Alexander, obviously the night before has thought, this is a great idea. Because the, the Tories get to own the budget, Labour get their opposition to it, but where are we? We need to do our own budget, and we need to do it out of a lunchbox. Because that is the only way people are going to take this shit seriously, right? And he obviously thought it was great, late at night, we'll do an alternative budget, no one's ever done it before. Exactly. <laughs> I think there's a reason that precedent exists, right? And the, the moment it dawns on him is the moment he opens the door to the treasury and realises he's got to go and stand outside on his own with a big yellow box. <laughs> it's probably all cocky inside, here we go, alternative budget day, opens the door and just goes, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Stands there like that, like it's sort of dirty laundry and he can't bring himself to look at it. <laughs> Obviously, Clegg's idea. You watch that and you just think, MPs are going to have nightmares about having a moment like that. People are going to wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, oh. Oh, darling, what is it? I'm fine, sorry, I just... Oh, I keep having that Danny Alexander dream. <laughs> I kept dreaming that I had to deliver the, an alternative budget out of the lunchbox. I'm sorry, it's fine. You are Danny Alexander. <laughs> there must have been when that happened, because some Lib Dem advisors must have gone, yeah, it's a great idea, Danny. Yeah, yeah, you do it, yeah. I bet you, the moment Danny Alexander walked out in the street, there was at least one phone call happening in Westminster with someone going, turn, turn Sky News on now. He's fucking done it, mate. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. He's done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 20 quid. See you later. <laughs> Miliband, of course, not only getting himself in trouble in Parliament, but uh, in his own house, where, well, depending on what, what you define a kitchen as, uh, he's got two of them. Uh, I don't mind if Ed Miliband's got two kitchens. It's never been a problem for me um, how many kitchens a person has. I've never really judged anyone on... I don't think any of us have. But it's just the notion that He'd have his photo deliberately taken in a smaller kitchen to say, I've got a small kitchen just like you poor guys. I think you should be voting for me now. Rather than just saying, I've got a massive kitchen. I inherited a bit of it. I got very lucky. I like life. You know, just being open with it. Like Cameron's like, fuck it, come in. Like, when Cameron was on James Landau's thing the other night, it was like MTV Cribs. Yeah, massive worktop. Yeah, I love thrashing the children over that. I've got HD telly in here, mate. Wi-Fi all around the thing. Got an underground pool. Well, the mum's like, oh, God, yeah, it's like I've got two kitchens and all this stuff. Like, oh, God. He's like, the problem is he's tried to deliberately do it. You think you can't just manipulate parts of your house. Can't have Ed Miliband in his shed going, like you, I often sleep in cramped conditions. 
I don't know what it's like to serve abroad. <laughs> Not really a big deal, is it? Um, my favourite scandal of the month has been Janice Atkinson, the UKIP, former UKIP candidate, who, in order to gain more money from Brussels, uh, had an event uh, down in Margate, and instead of um, asking for the bill to be the £950 it was, just ask the, the waiter to sort of top it up a bit. Um, now, sometimes people might leave a tip to a cab driver and say, oh, yeah, call it eight quid, and the taxi driver will make it out for eight quid, and people think, oh, that's nice of him. So seven, uh, it was 950 quid. They asked the hotel to make it out for um, quite a reasonable three grand. <laughs> Which is just like the most incredible... They had a disciplinary hearing that she turned up to uh, in a taxi yesterday, Janice Atkinson. It apparently cost 700 quid. Uh, <laughs> Incredible, just like three grand is such a ridiculous amount of it. Like, she's just gone, yeah, one, two, five hundred. Like, just, there's just no. They've had a few dinners with people. Basically, they'd like, I think they'd had like pie and chips and a few glasses of Coke. It's come to three thousand quid. It's like playing shops with a little kid. Okay, oh, you're gonna be the shopkeeper. Okay, I'll be the customer. Okay, okay, I've got a can of Coke and, um, and a, a packet of crisps. How much is that gonna cost me? Three million pounds. <laughs> he is funny, isn't he? I think our son's just joined UKIP. <laughs> um, Farage got chased out of a pub. He either gets chased into or out of pubs at the moment, doesn't he, Farage? <laughs> what have you heard about Farage being like, barricaded anywhere? Nigel Farage has met a group of protesters today who think they either chased him in or outside of a pub. <laughs> I feel quite sorry for him. What's fascinating about this story is, is when you hear, when you like, peel away the story, so I don't know if you realise, but last Sunday was in, I think, the Georgian Dragon, one of his locals, and a group of diversity campaigners burst in and started breastfeeding. Uh, there was a guy who uh, has got HIV who performed a poem and they hung like rainbow banners and all stuff like that. It's actually quite funny when you like explain it. But it's amazing, like British people's uh, tolerance for this story ends at a particular bit and it's always at this bit. They go, do you hear about Farage uh, getting barricaded into that pub by them campaigns? You go, really, really, what happened, what happened? They had people breastfeeding, like all the, all the groups in sight, he's pissed off. They were all there, you go, oh, that's amazing. I bet it was great, wasn't it? He was having his Sunday dinner at the time. What? <laughs> What, they interrupted him while he was having his Sunday roast. <laughs> These people are fucking animals. <laughs> it was exactly the same way. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Went, no, that is out of order. What was he having, beef? Pork? <laughs> I want to know what he had on the side. It's a good advert for the pub, actually. What was really funny was his response went, These people are scum. <laughs> no other party leader. And basically, he's turned into Alan Partridge. The, darkness. <laughs> the scum, subhuman scum. <laughs> I don't think Miliband did ever say that, would he? Oh, look, these campaigners, the scum. That's <laughs> <laughs> to say it. Farage has got proper ruthless, though. Like, you compare his leadership to what it was four years ago, where any time a UKIP candidate did anything wrong, he was like, well, come on. Look, Godfrey uh, says it like it is, uh, and sometimes that offends people. Uh, and if he does it again, he'll get a thorough dressing down from the rest of us at UKIP HQ. And now it's got to the point where if there's any scintilla of doubt, people are just immediately fired. Like Janice Atkinson, he came straight out and said, we're having a disciplinary hearing on Monday. But I have to tell you, from the videos that I've seen, it doesn't look good. And if it doesn't look good, it should be immediately removed as a UKIP candidate. And you go, crikey, like, he takes this stuff for decisions, but he's become very authoritarian. I think in five years' time, if he's still leader, and there's any scandal in UKIP, go, um... Uh, Mr. Farage, what's happened um, to Miss Smith, the candidate in Dudley, uh, who was alleged to have overcharged for a taxi? She's been executed. <laughs> At 9.05 this morning, she faced a firing squad of her peers. <laughs> we take this stuff very seriously. <laughs> there was the uh, Ed Miliband press conference in Clydebank earlier this week to uh, head off the SNP threat. Um, 
Ed Miliband has developed so many different ticks, right? Um, there's the one where he doesn't answer the question that he's been asked. He just answers ones that he wants to answer. It's a really good technique. So people will say to him, uh, uh, Nick Robinson might say, Mr Miliband, you're keeping plans for a mansion tax under wraps until after the next election. Why won't you just tell the public at the rate it would be set? Again, look, Nick, if you're asking me, have I got a plan for the economy? Then the answer's yes. <laughs> really quite good at it. He's got a new technique now where he, doesn't, he just doesn't answer it at all. He just keeps telling you that he's going to answer it. He goes, look, so someone that I think the other day said, uh, uh, what do you see a rumours that you're having uh, secret talks with the SNP uh, about forming a coalition after me the seventh? You know, look, uh, you know, this is a really important question. Uh, I think it deserves a really important answer. Look, what I will say to you, uh, I'm going to say now. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, what I would say is this, uh, after thinking about it, because you know, look, this is a big issue. <laughs> uh, and occasionally what I'm going to do to show that I'm taking it seriously, I'm going to close my eyes for a bit too long. Because <laughs> I'm really thinking about it. Uh, uh, what I want to say is this. You know, I think he's just watched too much X Factor. <laughs> and then they say, it's been a great round, guys. Only half of you can go to the judges' houses. We've had some great auditions. The standard this year was really high. And that's why we're telling you, right now, for the 10 people definitely going through next week, as of now, <laughs> are. And you're like, with Miliband, the problem is because you're used to this sort of X Factor thing, you think, God, the payoff's going to be amazing. But whereas in the X Factor, they go, you're through to the next round. They go, you and me, we can ride out of stuff. Steve and you're like, oh my God, glitter going off anywhere. When Miliband does it, I'll just say this to you. And it's the answer I'm going to give you now, because it's a big question. And it deserves a big answer. Britain can't do better. <laughs> For fuck's sake. What is this? Where's the glitter bombs, man? There's another, the final story. This is the, I've saved this to the last, because it is just the most low-brow political story I've ever been able to get my hands on. Uh, Charlotte, I think her name is Crosby, who was in um, Geordie Shaw. Does anyone watch this? Not only to watch it, I reckon you know what the story is as well. Oh, yes. Oh, no, Charlotte Crosby, all right, mate. She's, uh, Charlotte Crosby is a gregarious young girl, I think it's fair to say, uh, from Geordie Shore, who enjoys going out drinking and is um, sort of famed for being quite promiscuous. And she was on, I think, BBC Three or ITV Two, one of those programmes this week. And um, she was a snog marry avoid David Cameron. And she went, David Cameron? I'd suck him off. <laughs> It's the only time when the headline, new blow to the Prime Minister, is actually a good story. Mr <laughs> Cameron, he hasn't had a lot of good news, has he? You can just imagine his advisors going, put that at the end of the brief and it'll make his day. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Prime Minister, just before you do the day, um, I'm afraid Afsal Azam did contact the EDL and we're going to have to take disciplinary measures against him. Yes, uh, I'm afraid there is strong evidence to show that more people are using food banks these days. Um, Labour are going to go hard on this. Um, we've got a number of Conservative candidates that we are concerned have financial irregularities. Um, but... <laughs> have you seen Geordie Shaw? <laughs> oh, dear me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, thank you very much for, uh, for coming down. Uh, the second half, I'm sure, promises to be wonderful. We've one of uh, London's biggest, one of Britain's biggest political names uh, and a highly relevant time uh, to be talking to David Lammy. I'll interview him for a bit, and as usual, I'll throw the uh, floor open for questions. Uh, but for now, 
Enjoy your drink in the half-time break. I've been Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Hello, thank you very much. Oh, very kind, very kind. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, over the months uh, and years now uh, that we've been doing this show, I've always tried to get um, a, a proper mix of different politicians. Um, as many of you know, I come from a Labour background and I've tried not to have too many Labour people. Um, I've tried to get people at the start of their career, people who are looking back on their career, people who've been in Cabinet, people who haven't, people who have uh, led parties. Uh, and, and currently uh, do lead. And, and those people who clearly, what's always exciting, uh, that still have a large part of their destiny ahead of them. Uh, and, and one of those guests is tonight, someone who is one of the bookies' favourites uh, to be the next Mayor of London. Uh, so a, a really thrilling conversation. Someone who's been a rising star uh, in the Labour Party for, for quite some time and is still uh, one of the most talented... I know that sounded like an insult, didn't it? Uh, it wasn't meant as an insult. <laughs> one of the most talented people the Labour Party's got. Ladies and gentlemen, please give uh, a massive welcome to Mr David Lammy. That wasn't meant to sound it's like, like an a obituary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been rising stuff for quite some time. Thought, oh dear. But you know what I mean. You're still very young for a politician. I'm 42. That is. That's still young, isn't it? Is it? I've I think got it is three from... kids. My parents are dead. I don't feel that young. <laughs> what lovely first date chat. <laughs> Yeah, I like cycling. I didn't know we were going out. <laughs> this is a date. Sorry. Um, were you at Promises Question Time today? I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. I watched it on telly in my office. Do you, is that something you tend to do? Um, sometimes, if you want to see it as the public are seeing it, you sort of I can't, you know, I can't be asked to go in. So I just <laughs> <laughs> I watched it on telly. Do you enjoy the atmosphere in there, or not? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, You're amongst friends. <laughs> do I enjoy the atmosphere? Not really. It's a bit of a familiar ding-dong, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. But the problem is, I really enjoy it. So like, when people say oh, it turns the public off, I'm like, not all of us. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like watching a fight every once in a while. Like, but I can't believe... I can't believe that we've got to the point where people... It's become almost an issue, hasn't it, now, Promises Question Time? Like, in, in media circles, it's become a major issue. All MPs ever do sort of line up and say, oh, it needs to change, it needs to change. I mean, do you think it will? No. <laughs> no. Thank God for that. I mean, Good. Look, I, I, it's, it, it centres around, the, you know, the, the, obviously the, the protagonists and on, you know, Cameron and Miliband, and so, in a sense, it reflects them. Um... <laughs> No, I just find it a bit samey. Well, no, 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 I, I agree with that. Like, it has just, like, between those two, it's just become the same thing every week now. And, like, to the point where, I don't know if anyone else knows this, Ed Miliband sometimes doesn't even ask a question. He'll just go up and say, it's the same old stuff from the Tory leader, Britain needs a Labour government, and then just sits down. <laughs> so it's not even, ask, not even asking a question. Like, he'll have a go at Cameron for not answering anything. But in fairness, a lot of the time, he's not even giving him anything to answer. You just think, it has now become a panto between those two, like, the only thing I would say is, and this is difficult for you, but Cameron is, and I hate myself for saying it, Cameron's actually quite good at it. No, I don't think that. I think he gets rattled, he goes red. I sit right on the back row. Um, you know, I, I don't move around so people know where I'm going to be if I'm in the chamber. 
and it's literally opposite the dispatch box and you can tell sometimes his hand starts to shake really? if he's lying you know he's not he's not, <laughs> he's, not he's not brilliant he's really? not brilliant and actually some you can also i mean i mean obviously you can see that i move around so i either sit in the background i either sit in my office and watch on telly or i sit up in the gallery on the tory side overlooking cameron he's got a little ball patch yeah and i sort of stare down <laughs> at him like the journalists do you should move around during Prime Minister's question time. <laughs> David Lammy now on the Tory side. <laughs> see how many different camera shots you can get in. Like different I've hats. got a feeling if I was on the Tory side, people would notice. I wonder why. <laughs> it's, it's just quite Quartang. Because you're... <laughs> you've been um, an MP now since 2000. So 15 years an MP. 27 when you were first elected, what they would call the baby of the house. Was it an overwhelming experience when you were 27? I didn't think too much about it, but it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming, one, because I'd never been to the House of Commons in my life. No way. Ever. The and I just, there's no, no, absolutely no reason to go there if you're, if you're from Tottenham. Nothing. Why would you... <laughs> Why would you come to Westminster? It's a tourist area. But for Nottingham, it makes Never, sense. Never, ever been there. <laughs> well, there's jokes about Northern MPs that come to London and they keep going around on the circle line. I don't know where to go. <laughs> off, but, anyway, that's a whole but, but I'd never, so I'd never been there, and 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 I um, and so and, and you sort of arrive. I came obviously on a by-election, and you know there's the usual thing, the sort of thing that you would have organised when you worked yeah. for the Labour Party. Um, the, the MPs get paged. David Lammy is going to be at St Stephen's entrance. We want a photo for the press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just one in Tottenham, um, and um, all these MPs arrive to be in the photos at the front of the Guardian, um, and we took the photo, and then they all leave. They all bugger off, and yeah. there I am. I've got, I've got no staff, no office. I don't know how this works, and I'm going to get lost <laughs> because it's a very big place. <laughs> and so that sort of feeling stays with you. And actually, even now, I tend to stick to the same routes. You forget it's a palace. It's a huge, huge palace, and you can get lost. So I just, for the last 15 years, <laughs> I've been going around in circles. <laughs> no, no, I've been following the same route around the commons. So the first, maybe a few weeks, first few months, maybe even the first few years, were you genuinely getting lost getting like, stopped by security, stuff like that. Well, I mean, security in, in, in 15 years ago was, I mean, they're, they're really great, but, you know, it, um, in those early years, sometimes you'd bring friends in, it was a bit edgy. Um, I brought some but Irish you... friends in and it was very edgy, because, I mean, it was still the end of the, sort of the IRA yeah, of course, and stuff yeah. like that at the beginning. But, um, no, I mean, the, 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 the central question about when I started, so on one level, I was completely green. I was not the kind of MP that had dropped Labour leaflets from the age of four. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was not active in student bloody politics. Yeah. I was shagging and enjoying... Yeah! Uh, you know, I... I... I, I, I was... What, well, like with women and stuff like that? <laughs> I, I was... I was, um, you know... I, I was a Labour... Is that what you said at your nomination meeting? I was... We've been doing for the last ten years. I, I, I've been leafleting for starters. No, 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 no
I was Labour, my family were Labour, we needed the Labour Party, but I was not tribal. I was not of the Labour. And actually, you get into the Commons and you realise these guys have all, all known each other. They've known each other since school. They've known each other since university. They've known each other because they were union shop steward. And they've been, so, so there are clubs and cliques. Mm. And that really took me by surprise, frankly. And it took me, it's obviously now, 15 years later, in terms of the Labour tribe, I'm very much part of it, in it, understand it. But there are worlds within worlds in politics yeah. that you don't quite realise are there. And, and uh, on one level, I was inexperienced politically, but on another level, from Tottenham, I had friends who'd been to prison, who were mentally ill. Um, so you had friends in the Tory party? <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, um, and, you know, and so in a sense, I, you know, I felt... The point is, you can stand up in the Commons and there you are um, standing in it, at the dispatch box and Churchill and Thatcher and all these great people have been there. And you can be, frankly, if you're working class, intimidated mm. by these Etonians and bright, you know, Primrose Hill, Hill mm. PPE, Oxford, all that sort of stuff. That's nothing. I'm not slagging off Miliband, mm. by the way. I'm just, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a clique, isn't it? Yeah. On both front benches. Yeah. Um, and it's taken me time to sort of realise, actually, I bring shed loads to this place, yeah. shed loads of experience, and to be confident about that experience and not run away from it, basically, just give it to the place. And I think I've got there. I mean, I don't, I'm not renter, quote, I don't, I'm not always standing up, but when I do, the house tends to want to hear what I've got to say and, and people go quiet, and that's an indication that you're on the right track. Because that, uh, the, uh, can I ask you more about sort of being a young politician? Because one of the, and you've sort of summed it up really, one of the issues that people have with younger politicians or career politicians, as they're called, is they don't have any life experience. But even by the age of 27, you had more life experience than, than a lot of MPs in their 40s and 50s have had. Significant in, in the area that you grew up in and the, and the sort of things that you saw. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. Um, you know... My dad bought a house in 1960 or something in the middle of Tottenham for £6,000, went to the bank, got a mortgage. My aunt, who came with him, she didn't have the courage to go to the bank. Some of the bank managers in those days were a bit racist. Um, so she went to Harringay Council and they said, we've got a wonderful new apartment for you in a wonderful new estate just next to your brother. It's called Broadwater Farm. And so my aunt and her family on Broadwater Farm, we were 600 yards down the road, and I was, you know, between those houses because of childcare. And Tottenham was, was a tough place to be in the, in, the, in the late 70s, early 80s, for sure. And um, my parents' marriage was, was bad. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, they split, he split up, he left us. It was five of us, my mum. So this, was, this, was, this, is, this is important stuff to actually have in the House of Commons, yeah. but it takes some time to get to a place where people actually, where you have the confidence to share it and bring it to the table. I, I suppose the culmination of that was clearly the riots because I, mm. I genuinely believe that I was the right person. You know, Cameron was on holiday in Italy. Um, he'd been hugging a, 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 you know, there was a hostess, not hostess, that's, that's oh, George Osborne. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, it was a silly thing about a photo in a restaurant or something like that. Um, uh, 
Boris was, was, was in Canada making up with his wife. He'd had an affair just before that. Um, <laughs> was, 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 was uncontactable. Uh, no one was, Ed Miliband was somewhere on the south coast, was, did want to go abroad. Um, uh, <laughs> and there I was, you know, on that Sunday morning. And, and, and actually in the end, the right man yeah. at the right time. Well, it was because people forget Boris was absent for quite some, for days and days, and there was just a vacuum. I remember people saying, where's David Cameron? I was just like, from a Labour point of view, where's Ed Miliband? Like, if you seize this moment and come back and head to Tottenham, you'll be the figurehead of the sort of recovery, if you like, of, of this area. And they all, I think, deliberately stayed away. Well, there was sort of some, I don't know, some fear because of the Broadwater Farm riots before. Um, in fact, it's worse for Boris, because people forget Boris was heckled in Clapham. (laughs) (laughs) The people of Clapham went ballistic. (laughs) And then he went to Ealing and they were even angry. This is Ealing and Clapham. It wasn't Tottenham. It took him days to get to Tottenham. He was that nervous. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, it was a low, low moment that, of course, has been nicely papered over and nicely forgotten as he heads towards number 10. But the real point there is in the face of a deep, horrible, ugly crisis where you can't joke your way out of it. Boris was rumbled. And I've got to tell you, if he goes to number 10 with some of the decisions you've got to make there about people's lives and war and really, really tough stuff, it's the emperor has no clothes. I'm waiting for the, you know, the kid spot. He's naked. And people don't seem to realise that. You often Boris, is by the sounds thing. <laughs> <laughs> Boris is naked, physically, um, and, and maybe privately. <laughs> but he is, I mean, I'd, I'd like to talk about Tottenham in some detail, but in terms of Boris as a formidable figure, it, he must be very hard to campaign against. Well, I'm not campaigning against him. He's not going to be mayor anymore, is he? Thank but God. But when it has been mayor, like, Labour have struggled, haven't they, to, to effectively... I think, that, I think that, uh, that initially we serially underestimated Boris Johnson. Um, we took him as stupid. He, he said some terrible, terrible things when he was editor of The Spectator. Uh, and we sort of thought that that would gain traction. And we just didn't take the act seriously enough. Um, but I think it's also the case that having been a journalist um, he, uh, and, and, uh, and a politician... Pod- able to produce quite a lot of copying, um, he is on an upward trajectory. Hmm. And people want to write that upward trajectory. And in politics, you sort of learn that you know, occasionally politicians come along, they usually become leaders, you know, like, like, like um, Blair, really? like, like Obama, like, really? like, like Thatcher, like, and you know, Boris, they, and <laughs> it's there to there. That's not, for most politicians, certainly for me and, you know, most, it's, it's much more like that. It's up and down story, like real life. So Boris has got that sort of trajectory. People do not want to be that mean to him. He is clever at the way he deploys humour and wit. He gets away with it, but he'll get rumbled. Have you met him many times? Lots of times. And do you get on with him? I do actually get on with him, yeah. Because hey, this is the problem that I have, is I just think, not only is he quite funny... There is a perception as well in London that he's actually been quite effective. And he, I think he's chosen, well, in some ways, you know, he gets the credit for the Boris Boys. 
guess credit for the Boris bikes in terms of London's economy, in terms of regeneration in certain areas. There is a, just a general perception, obviously there are deep, deep problems in London that predate Boris, but there's a general perception, I think, amongst perhaps middle-class people that he hasn't been a disaster. That predate Boris? Whose side are you on? Well, I mean, we've got a massive... British, we've got... hard-working families who play with us <laughs> <and get on. laughs> We've got the deepest housing crisis. Rents are soaring, up 20%, just in my borough. Um, we've got... Boris has redefined an affordable house as 80% of market value. The average house in London is now worth 470,000. The average salary is 36,000. No one can afford to buy a house if they're of a certain generation. Boris hasn't built any. Do you, how many council houses do you think we built in London last year? Just guess. Well, based on what you just said, none. 40. All right. Close. Four zero. <laughs> Under Boris Johnson. And he's got away with it. And you've got to stop him. No, I'm going to stop him. <laughs> this is a woeful, woeful record. It's woeful. It's appalling. So why hasn't then, why hasn't there been an effective Labour figurehead talking like that publicly for the last 10 years? Oh, that's a deep question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, look, I think that the mayoralty in London is on a journey. Um, because, in fact, perhaps because, you know, London needed government, but, but let's face it, Tony Blair was worried about Ken Livingstone. Yeah, yeah. We didn't, all were, we? Didn't, didn't, <laughs> <laughs> didn't give him much power. Mm-hmm. There's been a slow, little, little bit of incremental increases in power. And so, there's a, so the, the population is waking up to how powerful this figure can be. But actually, it's still the fact that the mayor doesn't have massive tax raising power. Most voters, in the end, if you, if you can really hit people's pockets, mm. then they start to care. Now, he's taken up fares, by the way, mm. on underground and buses 55%. 55%! And, it, and certainly for my constituents, young people who can't get across London for a job, um, you know, um, a lot of people in the sort of my constituency, they're, they're cleaning our offices at night, they're security guards, they're, they're dinner. Like, these things matter a lot. But you're right, for a lot of middle class Londoners, it's an incremental path to actually understanding how much the mayor can have a massive effect. Now, he happens to be responsible for housing. There, he actually is responsible. And so my guess is, and that's why, you know, I, I, I put my name forward, I want to be the Labour candidate for mayor, because I've made housing absolute centre stage. And I think that both the combination of people who need a council house, uh, a generation who would actually quite like to own a home one day, mm. and it doesn't look like pot, because unless we get more supply, that's never going to happen. Um, uh, over time, my sense is that people come to realise that this mayor is actually quite important. So high, housing is your number one priority in terms of your, your candidacy for the for, first for the Labour nomination and then secondly for, for, the, for, the, for the mayoralty should you win it. So in terms of housing then, what would your plan be? Well, there's a couple of things. We, we got, I called for rent caps um, and um, I think a spectator or someone said, oh, he's, a, he's an old style socialist, he wants rent control black. Angela Merkel ran on rent caps in Germany. 
Mike Bloomberg ran on rent caps in New York, neither of whom can be described as socialists. It's just the sensible thing to do when the market is overheating and you've got rogue landlords taking up rent because they can do. The other thing, by the way, is all of you are taxpayers. Well, we presume. <laughs> Well, if they can afford to get in here, they must be. <laughs> They're paying your salary. The, 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 the 95% of the housing budget is spent on housing benefit. 90, 95% of taxpayers' money is basically going to landlords. There is something chronically... It should be going to building homes. So the system is broken. And I have to say, it's structurally broken... The last massive structural break in Britain was in the crash, and we found 500 billion to bail out the banks. Mm. We need to find some proper public subsidy to get back in the business of building and not just think we can leave it to the market to deliver it. It won't, I'm afraid, it won't. And that would, I mean, obviously your, your, your focus is on London, but this is a national problem, isn't it? Is this something that you would. Well, I think. You think should I be think in, in a Labour manifesto for the next election? Well, Obviously, the Labour manifesto has promised a million homes. Um, most of those are going to be delivered in London and the South East because it ha it's where people want to mm. live. I think there are huge problems nationally. There is a north-south divide that's back. It was very real when, when, when I was growing up in the, in the 70s and 80s. You know, you, you commonly heard about the north-south divide. The, the, there are huge problems on the, in coastal towns. Basically, I think what's happened is if you are a baby boomer, and there look like there might be a few uh, who are very much still alive, very active. In fact, one of the other candidates for mayor, Tessa Jow, is a baby boomer. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton wants to be president of the United States. She's a baby boomer. If you're a baby boomer, you had free education. You could buy a house, probably more than one. Uh, buy to let as well. Uh, you had pension. Um, um, you know, pretty hunky-dory. And then you've got Generation X, all three party leaders, and indeed myself, mini baby boomers. Um, I had a small student loan of £3,000. Um, uh, I certainly could buy my own home. I you paid bought, it off yet? Bought my house at 27. <laughs> I paid it off, the bank owns it, but I bought it, or, you know, borrowed it at 27. Um, and um, pension, I'm an MP, it's not too bad. Um, <laughs> um, and periods of full employment. The next generation that, that comes along, it's a nightmare. It's a, free education, gone. Pension, you're going to be working till 80. Buy your own home, impossible. So the demand, I think, the, the huge pressure in politics will be from a generation to respond to that. So the other thing we've got to do, as well as rent controls, is it seems to me we've got to review the green belt. It is not acceptable to be selling off playing fields in inner London to save car parks in outer London. There are a lot of places that are not green. Their quarries, their wasteland, their car parks. We need to build on that for a new generation in that M25 belt, it seems to me. I've been the only candidate to be honest about that. Tories won't go anywhere near it. Don't want to upset the people of Surrey and Berkshire and Hertfordshire. Oh, my God. Labour won't go anywhere near it. Don't want to upset the Daily Mail. <laughs> You've got to be honest about it. 
absolutely honest. We've got to get into the green belt, got to build those houses, usually in areas actually where it's a bit cheaper, where people can live and have ordinary homes. That was the kind of vision we had after the war. We've got to have it again. I went to school because I got a little break. I got an earlier in a London Education Authority scholarship um, to a state school. I always emphasise state school, but nevertheless, it was in Peterborough. Um, <laughs> oh, great, there's one person from Peterborough. From Kings. Wow, thank you for coming. That's my old school. You, so, are, you, are you friends? Can we just leave my private life out? <laughs> <laughs> it was a mixed school, but uh, it was a boys' boarding school. Uh, uh, no, so um, I've lost my train of so thought. Yeah, yeah. So I spent time in a new town. Yeah, and there, the new town, there was this sort of idea that was a bit like America almost. You know, you could go, you get a picket fence, you could get a bigger the house. Peter of a dream. People moved out the East End. <laughs> Yeah, the Peterborough commercial was Roy Kinnear. Um, <laughs> did you remember that wonderful Milton Keynes ad? It had this boy looking out the window. Anyway, that was, was fantastic. <laughs> but basically, it was a new life. This lot, this coalition, this government, the only new town that they're talking about is Ebbsfleet. That's it. It's not the 11 that we had before. We obviously have got to be in the place. In London, moving to a 10 million population, but particularly for a younger generation, of redeveloping and re-looking at that, that very, very sound concept. So there's new towns out. I think the danger is sometimes, though, isn't there, if you, you, know, you create these sort of garden cities or whatever you know, we, would, we would call them, uh, towns, they have to be near, though, don't they, centres of employment as well? Isn't there a danger you just sort of create estates in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, but you look at the Sloughs, you look at the Reddings, you look at the... <laughs> That's one of the best scoffs I've ever heard. You, 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 you look at the Milton Keynes and actually yeah. the truth is that companies do headquarter there. They do go there. Yeah. They go to where people want to be. Um, and actually also people do choose to commute. And if you build HS2 and things up to Birmingham, people get even coming even quicker. So um, you, it's an ecology and you've got to have the transport and the infrastructure and the culture and all the rest of it to go with it. There's one other issue I want to talk about. Can I talk about that? Mm. I've got... You got me then because I was having a sip of water. <laughs> Very clever. The other thing I want to throw a spotlight on as mayor that I feel very strongly about is... Um, so the political class and um, politicians are talking about a living wage. Yeah. Um, and I'm running a campaign on the living wage. Um, it's against premiership football clubs. I've got one in my own constituency that think it's cool and okay to pay cleaners, security guards, caterers less than the living wage, but a footballer can make a cleaner's salary in one game. Um, totally, totally unacceptable. But whilst we all talk about the living wage, the real issue is the structure of London's economy and the jobs that are available to people. And basically, there are quite a lot of people in very, very low, dead-end jobs with nowhere to go. Uh, those jobs are often retail, they're in customer services. Leader of the opposition. Uh, <laughs> he's heading to number 10. Um, he's heading to number 10. He's, he's he three times I said it, just to make sure that I was off message. Um, the, the, but the... But the truth is, 
these people are stuck. Yeah. And there's an old idea that has totally disappeared that no one's talking about. So the country has become... <laughs> National service. <laughs> that is an old idea. That's an old idea as well. But, uh, um, we can come back to that. Um, no, the, the old idea is working people be able to work during the day and skill up in the evening. Mm. The night school has completely disappeared. Find me an FE college that's open now and I'll give you a beer. They're all closed. Oh, come on, someone's got to think of what. They're all, no, no, they're city lit, and, but most FE colleges now are catering for young people and actually they're closed about 8, 8.30. Oh, FE, they're I not, you said find me an effing college that's no. over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a I'm very passionate I, about I, it. I, 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 I could have said that. <laughs> Uh, you can see why I'm not running to be Prime Minister. But, um, no, they're closed. And this is a serious, serious thing. So yeah. I would want to, as mayor, um, have way more in the shape of night schools where ordinary working people can go in the evening and can skill up to get access to some of these jobs and get better income. So what's the model for that then? Would, would they have to pay for their tuition or would that be free? You've got, you've got to subsidise that. Yeah. Actually, you know, Boris has got a lot of money through Europe. Um, and money through what we call what he calls the LEP. I don't know what he's doing with it. I do not know what he's doing with it. But I think that it should be, whilst young people are important and schools and education are important, we should not forget that the mainstay of the economy are the 30-somethings and 40-somethings. And there are a lot of people out there in places like Barking and Dagenham deeply frustrated because they've got nowhere to go in this economy. And basically in this country, if you're academic, if you go to a Russell Group University, probably this is one of the best places to be in the world. And certainly the city is one of the best places to be in the world. If you are vocational, if, you, if you're an apprenticeship, you know, national politics again. It's a lot to, we're gonna have a million apprenticeships, more apprenticeships. Look, 27% of the new apprenticeships in London were in hairdressing. 39% of them were in customer services. <laughs> I've got nothing against hairdressers. <laughs> but is that really a dynamic city? Mm. So we've got to get into the business of technical skills, vocational skills, accessing the new economy, and not just for middle-class, Russell Group-educated um, students, but for ordinary people in a way that I think this city did in a better way in the past. It must be quite difficult for you because um, when you're seeking a nomination, obviously you're, you're competing against other people in the same party. And as we've seen in leadership elections in the past, that can be difficult. What's your relationship like with Tessa Jowell and Sadiq Khan? They're great friends. <laughs> this can be difficult, no, no, isn't I'm it? I'm joking. I work, I work, no, I work with Tessa Jowell. Yeah. Seriously, I work with Tessa Jowell as culture minister. Um, she was fantastic to work for. She's got loads of energy. She's a very, very um, kind, likeable person. She's a real girl, isn't she? Um, She's a what? A real girl. A real? Who said that? Um, she oh. could be my mother. That is rude. Um, She's a real girl. So, isn't she? so I, I'm very personally. Um, <laughs> 
uh, really personally fond of Tessa Jowell. I'm just trying to find the pervert, David, sorry. Who <laughs> <laughs> was that? Real go, Rishi. Give a ride up my boat. Bizarre. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore it. Oh, you what? You what? Looking for I think we should just carry on. Oh, paedophiles. Well, yeah, that's not a trick. It doesn't, it doesn't make you one. Uh, <laughs> that's just, um, yeah. Uh, I've lost my train of thought now. Yeah, I want a very um, different train of thought. Sadiq, I really wish... <laughs> uh, Sadiq Khan, he's a, he's a great guy as well. He's yeah. a good friend. He'll be a great candidate if he runs. And, of course, the formidable Diane Abbott. So, have you, have you sort of... Just wait for our ambassador from the 70s to pipe up as well. Diane Abbott, fucking hell. But have, like, it must be quite surreal for you all. Like, have you spoken to each other much during... Because it's sort of like the unofficial campaign at the moment, isn't it? Until the general election's been dealt with, it's all almost like a sort of pretend campaign. Some of them were a bit upset with me because I actually... Um, announced publicly September, I want the nomination, and that's that. Yeah. Where they were all sort of hedging it, and I might, I might not. And I thought, well, what's the point? I mean, you know, let's just be honest with people. And some people said, oh, but you, you know, the people at Tottenham would be upset that you want the nomination. Well, actually, people are coming up to me in Tottenham. How are they going to run their two in their hall? I don't know if they want to get rid of me, but they, <laughs> they, they're really bothered. They realise yeah. it's a long way from Tottenham to City Hall, but they also realise that there's a difference between seeking a nomination for something and actually ultimately winning an election mm. in 2016. So I've been honest and open about it, and actually my feeling is that the issues in um, London in this general election are exactly the same in the mayoral election. Um, it's been great to be talking about the issues now. We're going into a general election, and the issue I can tell you what the three issues are. And, and, and frankly, the press will not move off uh, these issues very much, and neither will the political parties. Deficit reduction, immigration, very sadly, because Nigel Farage has put it centre stage, um, and the parties will react to it, and the NHS. Um, now, actually, when you get un underneath that, the benefit of actually announcing that you want to run for mayor is that you can talk about housing and get into the detail. Mm. Shall we build some council houses? You can talk about night schools that never come up in the general. You can talk about childcare and the fact it costs 15,000 quid a year for childcare in this city. You can get into the issues that ordinary people are talking about, but actually in sort of national politics that gets sort of, I don't know what the word is, um, sanitised. Yeah. Um, for the medium voter, swing voter in the middle, these, ide the, these issues tend not to get discussed in great detail. They're in manifesto, but they don't get discussed in great detail. So in terms of your campaign then, like, have you got an office booked and phone banks and like, staff on hold and stuff like that? I'm not going to give my campaign secrets away. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, have you got a font? <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant, I meant like for your letterheads, not like a... <laughs> Not like a church one at the back. <laughs> I'm going to be baptised on, uh, on the day that it all begins. I, I, I've, got, I've got an operation. You know, I've got a team of people 
um, uh, which sounds grand. There are yeah. three of us. <laughs> <laughs> Streamlined's uh, good. Uh, no, no, we, you know, we, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of an organisation. And have you got? So are you sort of mulling over slogans and things like that? Have you got any? Well, my nickname, uh, Kings, uh, for my my uh, comrade there, who was at my old school, uh, was the Laminator. <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing is, that could be for like two or three different reasons, <laughs> could it? <laughs> So I don't know, maybe it should be that. The laminator. The, obviously, it's... It's a good nickname. That's not why. I mean, I'm not Boris, I'm not Ken. You know, I'm David, I'm, you know, <laughs> Lammy for mayor. I don't know. We'll see what... what, what you you kind of get nicknames. You get slogans and names given to you, don't you, Simon? But are you going to have, like, sort of, you know... Fighting for London, or on your side, or like all those no. things. No. People's choice. No. no. Local voice, local choice. No. <laughs> I've used that one so many times. No. If in doubt, local voice, local choice. <laughs> on your side, but you're underlined. <laughs> That's right. Oh yeah, modern campaigning techniques. Cliche upon cliche. It must be quite exciting, though, because I mean, you're effectively like two votes away from being one of the most powerful people in the country. There must be a certain like, amount of adrenaline next time that you get, maybe when, that you don't have when you're sat on the back benches of Parliament. Well, someone said that um, our party conference was a bit flat. Oh, yeah. Um... <laughs> Who was that one dissenting voice? <laughs> 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 and, the, and the only the only people that weren't flat were the people running for London Mayor. So if you yeah. went to the fringes, um, we were slight. You know, we were we had energy, and um, I'm definitely very excited. I am. Um, frat, I mean, the truth is, I since the election, really, I, I haven't taken on a, a shadow um, a shadow ministerial role. I've been able to say what I think. Um, uh, I haven't sort of disappeared from our national life. I'm quite visible. Um, London means I can focus very much on the issues I care about. Um, so I'm not jumping up and down usually on foreign affairs or defence or something. Mm. And I am very, very, very motivated about the issues. And win or lose, I am determined to get those issues absolutely centre stage on a Labour platform. So that if my colleagues Tessa Jow or Sadiq Khan are to become mayor, they will have to adopt some of the issues that I'm, I want to talk about. And do you think that the campaign will be fairly um, respectful? You know the Labour Party. <laughs> it's going to be a bloodbath, isn't it? <laughs> do you think, does that worry you a bit? I mean, I've been irritated and frustrated that the party, Ed Miliband, announced that we were going to have a primary. Yep. Um, I think that's great. I think it gives the opportunity for, yes, of course, Labour Party members and, yes, of course, members of the unions to, to be involved in selecting the candidates. But with a primary, as you see in the United States of America, you can fire up a bunch of people in the city who are Guardian readers, who are independent readers, yeah. who are mirror readers. Why are you yeah. free? <laughs> Tele Telegraph readers? Who are, who are a few standard readers. Um, uh, <laughs> probably not reading the Telegraph. <laughs> who, uh, who want to get engaged in the process, pick a candidate, and 
nominate and see that candidate go through. That is a great, great idea. It gives the candidate a great base, right? I called for it years ago. Yeah. So we announced with great fanfare after Falkirk, we're going to have a primary. Then you find out that the party's going to charge 10 quid for the primary. Well, a lot of people might want to party. 10 quid? I don't think people are going to pay 10 quid. So we put a lot of pressure in. The 10 quid, I wanted it to be a quid. Yeah. I mean, you've got to administer things. So I thought quid with the, the, the socialists in, in France tried this and they charged a euro. Anyway, it's now three quid. Okay, we've got to compromise. And the next thing we find out is the window to register and pay your three quid to enter this primary is 12 days and the clock starts ticking after the general election. 12 days. Most people are knackered after the general election. Yeah. You know, they're, they're Politics has been banging on and on. They're fed up of politics after the general election. Again, you put a bit of pressure on, and now they've extended the time for six weeks after the general election. So the, pop, the problem is with political parties, you know this, you work for the party, they make announcements and things get very tribal. And actually, let's just go back to the old ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, so it's a primary. I encourage anybody who's here to... If you want to participate in the Labour primary for mayor, you want to choose me or you want to choose one of my other colleagues, to go to my website. <laughs> Register and you can pay your three pounds and you can participate in our primary. Oh, it's a great idea. I, I just wonder, from your point of view, are you perhaps cynical that the party centrally have, have maybe changed it and put, brought in the £10 thing and, and brought in the that very short period of time to organise for whoever their candidate might be perceived to be. And who do you think that candidate is? I can't make my mind up. Sadiq? <laughs> um, he, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, look, I, mean, I suppose he was Ed Miliband's campaign manager, wasn't he? Mm. <laughs> um, look, I, look I, I think that parties can be a bit tribal. But actually, in the end, politics usually turns up the candidate that we deserve. Mm. I am definitely running. Um, I'm clearly running as an insurgent candidate. I accept that. Sounds so exciting though, doesn't it? I, I, I'm raising issues that others aren't going to raise. If people like me, they'll go with me. Let's see where we get to after the general election. Very exciting. Insurgent. You feel like a rebel, don't you? It's sort of like... It's, but it's quite cool to think of yourself that way, isn't it? Because then in a way, do you feel like you've got nothing to lose? Well, no, I've just... Look, I've had nothing to lose from the moment I got into Parliament. I'll tell you, my life prospects were not... I'm not meant to be sat here with you on a stage with my background. No, no, Ken Livingston and, didn't do it. you know, you... <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you... I mean, I think you... I mean, I've got to... Uh, I mean, you challenge me on being young. I'm a working-class background. Like, arguably, none of this should be said. Yeah, but precisely. Precisely. So... You either get to a maturity and a level in your life, and as I say, I've, my, both my parents are gone, I've got three kids, where you want to be yourself. And frankly, I, and you know, in politics, you've got to have a thick, a thick skin, so you can't care too much about the consequences of being yourself. I mean, let me just give you an example of this. I can't tell you, walking down Tottenham High Road on that Sunday morning, after the riots, a high road I've known all of my life. Hugely emotional because um, people I knew and loved were affected because the, the streetscape in my home was brutally affected.
because the television cameras were everywhere and looking at my constituency and repeating over and over again its problems. Um, but I can't tell you, walking down that high road with comforting men and women standing just in their pajamas with their kids, their shops burnt to the ground, smashed to bits, their homes burnt to the ground, smashed to bits. And then there's this, this, this noise, uh, this sort of white noise um, from parts of the community, parts of the media. You're aware of, of, of the context of the Broadwalk Farm riots in 1985, and the press sticker, uh, a, a mic on your, on your nose, um, are you prepared to condemn the rioters? And of course, um, that's really loaded, mm. and the assumption is that it's, it's okay to burn down people's homes and burn down people's shops because a young man has lost his life on the streets of Tottenham. And there was real pressure to say, no, I won't condemn them. Mm. Well, absolutely, of course I condemn them because two wrongs do not make a right. And because just because there were 600 people on the streets of Tottenham, there were hundreds of thousands of people in their homes terrified. The vast majority of young people in Tottenham, just as they were for me in the Broadwater Farm riots, were at home, they were not on the streets. So, so I condemn them. I, that's about being yourself. You don't cave into the bloody pressure and say the easy thing. You say what is right and what you know to be right, as tough as it is in those circumstances. Did you get a lot of pressure from within the community? Obviously, there was the, the, the protests around the death of Mark Duggan um, at the hands of the police. Um, and let's not sort of revisit the details around that. But did you get pressure from within the community to, to not condemn rioters? Well, the point is, it's, it's this business of the community. Um, the, the community I know um, are people who are, um, as I, they're, they're traveling into work now. Um, you, you, they, they might come out the tube early in the morning. They're very, very hardworking people. Some of them are juggling more than one job. And in fact, they have a small C conservatism to them. They want the very, very best for their kids and they want role models for their kids. Um, there is obviously suspicion of, uh, of the police, uh, but lots of communities have suspicion of the police. Um, and a lot of the scandals have demonstrated why. But in the end, they want to be properly policed. Mm. So there was pressure from parts of the community but not all of the community. And I have always been determined to, um, you know, try and represent the entirety and not just pander to sectional interests. In terms of your relationship with the police then, growing up in the time that you did and given Britain's um, difficult relationship with the police, particularly around issues of race, have you had to change some of your opinions of them and has that changed if they have with experience and do you think the police are better at handling these things now? Well, funny enough, um, I'll let you into another secret. Um, other than being a member of parliament and before that being a lawyer, I've always wanted to be a policeman. Quality. <laughs> um, I grew up, you know, with the Sweeney and, yeah. you know, and... Shut it, you slags. <laughs> Quality. Uh, Hill Street Blues, yeah. Cagney and Lacey. Um, you know, I did not want to be Cagney. <laughs> right. um, and so I've always, I've always loved that whole side of it. And 
I had a row uh, a couple of years ago with Bernard Hogan Howe because I put in a little application form. Um, yeah, I had a little bit more time after the last election yeah. uh, when we lost um, to be a special constable. Quality. Um, and it sort of found its way through the system and Bernard Hogan Howe um, said no. So I went to see him. I said, Bernard. It's <laughs> not <laughs> so funny when you just use his first. It's like that. It's like, it's what, it's like black out of three. Bernard was black out of two. There was three. a Bernard, two away. Um, are you mad? Sorry, but you've got a black man who's pretty visible, who wants to put on a uniform and say actually being a police officer is not a bad thing. You should be shaking my hand. Oh no, David, it's too political. What if you had to split up a fight in a conservative club in Bromley? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he said, look, you, 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 I'm not, you can't be a special constable, you can't put a uniform on, but, but there's a parliamentary police scheme, go on the parliamentary police scheme, you go quietly on the front line with officers. So over the last um, um, two years, I have been spending time in the evenings, actually the police have let me wear it. <laughs> Um, they won't let me do it in Haringey, obviously, because I'd be recognised. Um, <laughs> but I've been um, in Camden, I've been in Brent, I've been in, in Westminster, really on the front line, with not with top cops, but with, you know, Traffic ordinary <laughs> constables. <laughs> and it has been, and they're really, really fantastic people. Overwhelmingly fantastic public servants. And the things, you know... You know, from the from from drunks and um, you know uh, kids on drugs and behaving badly, domestic violence, but awful, an awful uh, occasion in Camden where 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 I saw the police rush to the aid of a young man who'd who'd just been knifed actually and saved his life. Incredible, incredible, incredible people. But obviously, the other side of it is I'm not always dressed like this. Yeah. Sometimes I wear a hoodie. Uh, sometimes I'm on the way to the gym and um, I too have been stopped by the police and it's you know if I get stopped by them it's like you know what recently N not recently no no but I but but you know within the last three or four years so have you been an MP oh god yes oh god yes and what do they say when they stop you uh, yeah, sorry, but they're actually fairly polite, so it would stop you, but, you know, we, you met a description of someone who's, you know, been caught in an accident, can you empty your pockets or whatever. But I can remember one incident, it was, in the, it was in the 2005 election, I was coming from a hustings with my elder brother, who was driving a very flash car, and the TSG pulled up alongside the car, uh, blue lights, stopped us it was bloody terrifying and of course me being an mp the first thing in my mind was i'm in the middle of my bloody constituency yeah. you know i'm being i'm told to get out of the car put my hand on the, you know people are gonna this is embarrassing this yeah. is really really you know sort of middle class this is really embarrassing what, <laughs> drugs and then you start to panic that they're gonna plant something you know yeah. um 
all sorts of things going through your mind, you know. It was sort of, it was frightening and horrible. Ed Miliband in the back, high as a kite. So what when I said my brother, I meant my real brother, not my brother out in the black. Got a And of course, you know, I suppose uh, very quickly they realised they had the local member of parliament and it was, <laughs> it was slightly, and they very quickly made off. But that's a unique insight, isn't it, that, that obviously too few people in parliament have for, 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 for the very obvious reason, but do you find it difficult from a politician's point of view sometimes that actually you can sometimes empathise with the police in a situation like that, or do you think there is a genuine problem with the way that police approach black people in this country? I think that we have to have a metropolitan police that looks and feels like London. That's the starting point. Make I'm it not metropolitan, cosmopolitan. <laughs> Stop with the Get it slogan. on that letterhead. Get it on that letterhead. Stop with this. You're a much better comedian than you were a spin-off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, no, you, you, we got to a stage where you go up to an officer and it, it's wonderful, they're nice, you know, great, but you ask them where they're from, they're from Cheshire, you know, Coventry, anywhere but London, basically. Mm. Uh, we're also in a situation where the housing crisis is so deep that officers can't live in London. And frankly, you know, if you've just been burgled um, and you're in, I don't know, Muswell Hill, you'd quite like a Londoner to turn up. You know, you, 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 some sense of, you yeah. know, Curiously. relevance, you know. So um, I think the starting point is getting to a point where the Met actually look, and that's black and white. It feels more like a London um, service. Yeah. Um, you obviously always, it's the national force. You'll always have offices from 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 beyond beyond London, but the pendulum had swung so that almost three quarters of the officers were were not from London and certainly did not live in London. And I think Bernard has 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 recognised that point and has moved to change that literally in the last in the last six months. Um, and then I think it, you know if you're going to stop and search people, what we were doing. I mean, it was terrible, but it was, it was happening. It, it started to happen after 2005 and the bombings. Um, and where you would round up, it was very big in Tower Hamlets, often, uh, you know, brown and Asian looking young people be round up after school. Then we had a massive spike in knife crime and you found a lot of urban kids and black kids being rounded up after school. So it, young people were just feeling very, very harassed. Mm. You had these whole Section 60 notices, so the whole of a whole borough would be sort of, you know... That was excessive, and it wasn't intelligence-led. So if it's intelligence-led, if you've got intelligence, um, um, then I think people will accept it. I don't... I, I, it's horrible to be stopped, because for me, it's, in, you know, I'm just embarrassed and horrified. But I think it's a bit like um, when you go um, through an airport, you know, you, you, you take your shoes off and go through all the rest of it. It's to make the plane safe and you accept it. It's important. Um, if it's done properly and you understand why it's done, you're happy to go with it as, 
as embarrassing sometimes as it, as it might be. But if it's done excessively and it's not intelligence-led and there isn't legitimacy because the force or the service does not look like the city, then of course you lose the trust of certain communities. What an amazing thing to be able to go out there on the front line with. Do you go like in a riot van ever? <laughs> well, I, I've, I've, I've been out on the, on the, uh, with the um, river police I went out with the helicopter. The Quality. It was amazing. It was so amazing. In fact, we were, we, were, we were over Heathrow Airport, some houses around the back of Heathrow Airport. Of course, there were houses. That's <laughs> airport, <especially laughs> into that. um, and there was a burglary going on. And literally, the, you know, the police were looking down with their, and they got these amazing cameras and telling the police on the ground where the burglars were hiding in the back garden, dipping the plane and looking. And it was really so thrilling in fact that I started to feel very very sick <laughs> so sick in fact that I vomited very <laughs> uh, and the police officers found this very funny in fact I began to think that maybe they thought it was really funny to make the MP for Tottenham really sick. they wanted to take a photo the MP for Tottenham um, is sick of the police <laughs> on Twitter I didn't let them do that but it was you know I've seen a lot I suppose you can't really patrol your own constituency, as you said, because that would, that would be politically... That would be weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just got tasered by the local MP. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of... Well, you mentioned Heathrow there, which is quite, obviously is a big issue at the moment in, uh, in London, about airport expansion. And Gatwick, we've got this big PR campaign that I see on the tube every day. Where do you stand on that? Well, I was a Stansted person, actually. Um, maybe because I'm, you know, up there in the northeast. But I thought there was room to definitely to um, expand Stansted. But the Davis Commission has left it out. Um, I think that I, I do think we need more capacity, and I think we've got to act on it and not kick it into the long grass like we've been doing. Um, let's see where Davis comes out, but. Clearly, you will not reach a solution unless the public have confidence in the noise and the pollution issue. And they don't at the moment, so it's going to need some new, powerful regulator that gives people the confidence, frankly, that the airlines and the airport aren't taking the Michael, basically. What about Boris Island? That was a... That was a you could have it as David Island. That was the, that was the biggest load of hogwash... <laughs> It was absolutely absurd. And the reason it was absurd is because the bottom line is, and this is important, is that if there's airport expansion at Gatwick, or if there's airport expansion at Heathrow, or indeed if there was at Stansted, ultimately the airport will fund that expansion. Boris Island means the taxpayer will fund the expansion. Billions of pounds. Incredible. Never mind the fact that the most successful bit of the London economy is the West London economy around Heathrow and beyond and into the West London co corridor, into Berkshire and that bit of London. Why would you dismantle Heathrow, screw up the West London economy to move an airport that the taxpayer's gonna fund in the estuary airport? Boris is very, very good at these sort of smoke ideas that are never, ever, ever going to come to fruition, but just get him a lot of fanfare as a visionary. He's just done it with um, 
these ridiculous water cannon. <laughs> I, I, I've walked down Tottenham High Road you after... Could, you could be manning ride. one of them soon. Manning? <laughs> you, you couldn't get a water cannon down Tottenham High Road. It wouldn't fit. I mean... <laughs> it, you wouldn't get it out if you got it in. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and of course we're not going to have water cannon on the streets of London. It is wasted, Mark. It's like that bloody cable. Have you seen it? Have you looked oh, up... Oh, the Emirates Airline thing. Yeah, you look up at the, at the cable car... Yeah. And there's no one in it. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Ever. It's totally empty. Really it's, it's, it's the absolute opposite of a ski lift. No one is in it. And again, he's wasted and he gets away with this stuff. He is, um, he's a big character, isn't he, Dan? I suppose at a time when it's perceived that there aren't enough big characters in politics, he's at least brought a bit of colour and a bit of tinsel, hasn't he, really? Frankly, you know, he's made it a little bit more of an, a more exciting place, perhaps. Not to my concern. <laughs> No, indeed. Um, I, I, I wonder. I was going to ask you earlier about your relationship with Ed Miliband because he offered you a place in his shadow cabinet and you, and you turned him down. Why? I um, have known Ed for a long time. We're both North Good London. Good reason. No, no, Good reason. No, no. <laughs> oh, God, I walked into that one. We're, we, we're, we're both North London, you know... Uh, born and raised. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to get to Harvard Law School, spent some time at Harvard, and um, Ed and I spent some time there. He loves baseball, he took me to a baseball game. Um, so on a personal level, um, I know him pretty well. Um, he's funny, actually in private. He's got a lot of... <laughs> He is you know, in public. <laughs> I'm beginning to feel like I'm, I've suddenly got into this riff where I'm his publicist. But, 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 you did a better job. But he's a great... <laughs> you know, he is. On a personal level, I, I, you know, I've got a lot of time for him. But I did not want to be on the front bench. I, I've said I wanted to um, say what I think about the issues. I was writing a book. Um, I, the book's done very well. And it's, you know, I knew I wanted to have a go at becoming London Mayor. I didn't want to be hemmed in by collective responsibility. Everything I said, I'd have to clear with, with his office or, you know, Ed Balls, you know, he's got to cost things, and I just couldn't be bothered with it. So I'd do my own thing, and, and that's the right thing to do. So when he offered you the job, what, face-to-face, -face, was it, in his office? No, he rang me up. So he rang you up. Yeah. Um, he rings you up, he goes, oh, hi, David. Uh, <laughs> is Ed here? Look, I really want to ask you something. And what I'm going to ask you is a big question. And what I'm going to ask you is this. I, I think it's important that I say this. Because this, for me, is the question. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't really want to ask it. <laughs> and so when he said, look, I'd like you to come in, did he offer you a specific role? He did, yeah. What did he offer you? I've never said what he offered me. Because I, I always think it's... it's, it's I, I. <laughs> You've got a very seductive voice. <laughs> uh, um... No, because for the person who ended up doing that job, it's a little bit, you know. Yeah, but it's all out the window now, isn't it? No, it's not. Oh, OK, well, which department was it? No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but was it going to be a shadow cabinet role? So it would have been... Would you have been I, think, I think I was going to look in on the shadow cabinet, yeah. I mean, he has these roles where you're a minister and you can, you can attend. OK, so um, it wasn't going to be one of like, the bigger ones. It would have been underneath. It would, be, it would have been a mini big one. <laughs> um... 
<laughs> don't start yeah, guessing. Transport. Don't start Culture. guessing. Northern Ireland, no, no. Look, was it Northern Ireland? No, no, no. I've, not, I've never said I'm not going to say Defense. it. doesn't really matter. Oh. It's, 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 it's five years ago. If it, if it, just amongst friends. I, mean, so, I was just interested. Was it something that you'd... Education. <laughs> education. <laughs> education. You are not going to run through every single department. Well, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're probably not going to give me an answer. Um, was he, how did he take it when you said no? Oh, he was great. He was cool about it. He was great. You know, I said, I, I said to him, Ed, I want to write a book. Yeah. As first thing. Um, and um, you, you will get my full support. I said to him, um, you know that. And, and you know, he was, he was completely fine. Yeah, so he didn't he take it personally, wasn't like, no, oh, David, come on. No, no. I mean, look, we all want to write books, mate. Oh, <laughs> I've got an election to do <laughs> Did he go, please? <laughs> <laughs> Good on him for taking it well, though, I suppose. Oh, dear. Please, you must stay away from phones the <laughs> day after the general election when we win. I'm not having you doing any fake calls to my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Pretending to be Ed Miliband. Promoting me. <laughs> Completely screwing up his next cabinet. That's a great idea. I could make him out to be a real, like, maniac, can I? <laughs> Ed Miliband's just been on the phone asking me where he can get me a gram of coke. I don't know what the <laughs> well, I just really need it. We had a big God, party last God, night. God, God, <laughs> Miliband says he wants some strippers to come and say, what the fuck God. is going on? What have I unleashed? <laughs> <laughs> great idea. Um, right, um... Let's open up the uh, floor to questions. So we've got a question for David. We've got a roving mic, so I'll bring it over to you as uh, quickly as we can. If you could just say your name. Just have the house lights up for a bit. Uh, house lights up, please. Um, yes, we'll start with the gentleman down the front. That might be easier. Thank you, Tris. A round of applause to Tris, who's our microphone man this evening. <laughs> a very talented. It's Tristram Hunt. <laughs> You're very interesting on housing and spot on, but three things I thought we failed to mention in London. The first is empty homes. Um, hundreds seemingly, seemingly in my area in Stratford. Secondly is the threat to the housing associations, which was publicised in the Times on Sunday. And thirdly, there is a private sector alternative for the rented sector. On the continent, the pension funds put up money for rented accommodation, and they're quite happy to get a reasonable return for property, um, at, which is rented at, at reasonable rates. Mm -hmm. My brother pays mm -hmm. 400, 500 pounds a month for accommodation is far better than I've, I've got. And that's an alternative to state housing. Okay. Uh, they're all good points. Um, I published, when I announced in September, a 60-page report. Um, unfortunately, in this wonderful, wonderful exchange, I'm not able to sort of list all the, all the, all, all the housing um, uh, uh, issues that I've raised, but the three that you raise are sound ones, and some of them actually are in the report. All I would say is, in the end, we have a massive, massive supply problem. Um, we have to get building. Um, there's actually political consensus that we have to get building. There's not political consensus about where. Um, um, there's a danger that we're just going to build tall and build the same old horrible estates that we built 30, 40 years ago. Um, um, we've got a problem with land values. You know, Boris de declares these housing zones effectively, and the minute he declares them, land values go up. 
you know, everyone's rushing to the crossrail routes. And, you know, it's yeah. so we've got a big, profound problem that's going to take, I think, big state intervention, in my view. You're right that private rent, rental is absolutely a model, but I don't think it's an either or. I just think it's one of. Um, I, I do stand by rent caps. And in, the, and in the medium term, the solutions are not just in London. They've got to be in the wider in the wider area. So those are the those are the mainstay of the points, but the bottom line is are we comfortable living in a city that only built built forty council houses last year? Your point about the housing associations are right. They're now playing the private market. We've got local authorities rolling over on viability um, uh, consistently and just allowing 10%, 20% affordable homes. So it's a massive, massive issue. And, um, and I hope we'll hear more about it in the coming weeks and certainly in the mayoral campaign. Okay, yes, the lady in the middle there. If you just let us know your name as well, please. Yeah, hello, I'm Claire. Um, I live in Hackney and uh, remember the riots very well, actually. And just wonder, I sort of feel like the sort of root causes around the riots and some of the young people that, that you know, were rioting that you rightly condemned sort of been a bit forgotten about. Really. Absolutely. And I wonder what you you would do if you were mayor and as a London MP to sort of give a bit of aspiration, inspiration to those young people and sort of really look at those root causes again. The, so this is an absolute scandal. The, um, there should have been a proper statutory inquiry into what happened and why it happened. Um, Cameron set up a victims panel um, and these three individuals roamed around the country speaking to people and they actually came up with not a bad report. It had about 65 recommendations in it and the last time I looked 11 of them have been implemented. Um, so I'm afraid the underlying reasons um, behind some of the behaviour, and when I say that, what I mean by that is um, the sort of shamelessness of people wanting to take that opportunity and behave in that way, remain um, and have not gone anywhere. And um, no one seems to care until it happens again. Uh, at the same time, um, youth services are being terribly slashed across the country, and certainly here in London. In fact, my own local authority is cutting youth services. One in four Londoners is unemployed. Um, um, and in fact, cuts were not biting, um, and they're now biting. So I think there are some very real issues. But the other thing I would say is this, we slip very quickly into young people rioting. Actually, you know, and it's amazing how when you, there was that wonderful documentary on September the 11th and the jumpers, the people that jumped yeah. rather than would face the fire. And basically the documentary concluded that the idea of people committing suicide was so awful that almost people just, the press and the, conspired not to cover the fact that people actually actively jumped. There is an element of the riots that's a bit like that. The truth is, a lot of people on the streets of London were adults. They were in their 30s and 40s. I saw whole families smashing into the comet at Tottenham Hale, carrying, it was like an episode of Shameless, whole box sets trudging through the streets. You know, 
Um, they should call that Haley's Comet. <laughs> um, the guy who burnt down that building in Croydon was 40. So actually, let's give young people a break. Um, the story behind the riots is much tougher mm. than that, in truth. Amazing. Uh, yes, go at the bar. Always a good place to start. Hi, uh, my name's Karim from Wandsworth. Um, David, I think you've talked in quite a radical way um, laying out your platform for London. Um, it certainly sort of surprised me. Um, with regards to the general election, does it ever frustrate you that um, we never hear any talk from Labour of redistribution? We never hear any talk of nationalisation of utilities or the railways? Uh, we never hear any talk of tax rises? And I think that's yeah, there's a reason. A lot. For that. <laughs> I, I, th I think there'd be. I think there's quite an appetite out there for these policies. I just wonder if, um, you know, what the view on the back benches is. Well, you probably could detect from my tone that one of the reasons. I mean, I I found, on a personal level, that I wanted to. Um, in a way, in these very, very miserable, depressing times, um, and that has really been the case since 2008, that for my own sanity, I wanted to focus on my own constituency and on a city I know really, really well. Um, and that has kept me focused, motivated, and somehow, when you get down to city level, or indeed local level, change is possible. In some senses, you know, Britain is really at a, at, at a fork in the road here because the reason why we've got six parties getting routinely more than 5% in the polls is because the country is very fragmented. So actually, I'm not so sure that it's just about the Labour Party being hugely prescriptive from the centre about what should happen locally or at city level. What we learned from Scotland, in fact, is that you have to devolve further down. So, look, that prescription, my, I, comrade, I can tell you're a socialist. I'm with you. But I, I happen not to, I, look, New Labour begun under Paul, it started with Paul Keating in Australia. Um, and then Bill Clinton and then Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It's 25 years old. Um, old Labour is very old indeed. The solutions today are some of it will have traditions in both of those things but we'll need some new solutions um, so my frustration is really and i do get frustrated with national politics um, i do find you know i've said to you the fact that the next general election is going to be about deficit reduction the nhs and, and immigration particularly the immigration rhetoric i've got to say i find really really depressing but when you get down to a city or a local level, it gets more exciting and more is, more is, more is tangible and doable. Um, and, um, you know, we've got to take some heart in that. And actually, the party's standing on devolution. Um, actually, I think that there is a bit more redistribution. If you look at the pledges and some of the things we want to do, you've got to redistribute to get the apprenticeships you want, things like that. Um, and actually, nationalisation in terms of the... I mean, there is... There's, there is talk around in terms of the railways and moving forward. So um, I don't think it's, as, it's not as bleak as it might seem. But yes, at a national level, the language still feels, for me, to my taste, locked into 
a compass that was effectively set by Paul Keating, Bill, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. It's still locked into that place. The fight is still with the swing voter in the middle. And somehow that, that, that causes real tensions in cities like this. London is a progressive city. In order to, for Boris to win it, he had to swing to the centre. Of course, he's now gone back to where he's feeling comfortable. But he swung into the centre and then did a lot of have I got news to you, uh, have I got news for you, in order to win. So um, for our temperaments, of course, the national language is problematic. Is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? If so, shout out. Yes. Yes? Just yell it out if you like. There are other issues. There are yes, other but, issues. But no, but those are the Actually, you don't spend money on water cannon. You don't spend money on cable cars. Um, there's a lot of waste in Boris's city hall. Let's be honest about that. Yeah, but cannons you don't, cable when, cars you don't spend money. millions. <laughs> <laughs> Millions scoping out an airport that we're never going to have. So, so there's a lot of waste. Um, there, there is actually money that comes into London through, um, th through Europe. Um, and then you have to make decisions and set priorities. But you also have to harangue the Treasury and you've got to harangue the Chancellor and make the case. But, there, but frankly, there are things that we can do for London for our, and ourselves. We're building Crossrail at the moment. It's going to be fantastic when it's finished. 50% of it's funded by Londoners. It's, it business rates and it's not come from the Treasury. Uh, the congestion charge raises money for transport in the city. So um, there are, I have said, for example, and you know, you might not like it, so you might not want to nominate me, but I've said that I would put 12p on council tax for every Londoner um, a year to fund two and a half thousand extra police officers because I have seen what happens when you haven't got those officers on the streets of Tottenham. And by the way, neighbourhood policing in London is collapsing around our ears. If you have a terrible crime and you ring, a, ring 999, in terms of a blue light response, the police will turn up. But if it's a lower level crime, if you're, you know, if there's, if there's the graffiti, you've just been burgled and they've left, you've gone home, if you just had your iPad nicked or whatever, you could wait for weeks. So um, I think that, you know, you can use council tax and that's one way in which I do that for policing. So there are things the mayor can do. It's about the mayor's priorities. Boris's priorities are very clear. He's also incredibly laissez-faire. In that sense, he's very, very much a, um, a Thatcherite Tory. He thinks it's all about the market. For him, housing will be solved entirely by the private sector. So what's happening? Um, he's failed miserably his housing target. 17,000 ho uh, homes built last year in London when we need 60,000. But then when you look at those homes that have been built, they are largely being built off plan for foreign investors. So there are all these cranes up over London, but they're not building homes for Londoners. So it's about priorities. And, and, and I think we need a more, um, uh, a mayor that frankly is prepared to take on more vested interests. And those are vested interests within your party. Those are vested interests within the government of the day. 
and there's certainly vested interests that, that sit in London. There are 77 billionaires now in London and 400,000 millionaires. There's a lot, we're wealthier than we've ever been. But the poverty levels are also more acute than they've ever been. We've got to address that. But how do you... That's my question. <laughs> Well, it was. I think, I think 12p on council tax. You, you say that, yes, we have these billionaires. We have I, these I can't, I'm, I'm, well, you, look, I can't set out a full manifesto today, but for example, last week I announced, it was in the standard, that I would have a foreign um, uh, buyer's tax that would be a stamp duty surcharge that would, that would be 1% on anyone who's a foreign buyer on a house over 925,000 who demonstrated that they were not living in that house. And that's because I have the view that uh, those who are investing in London housing, thank you very much for coming, but you can afford the extra tax to contribute to building affordable homes. That is a policy. I'm sorry, madam, I can't set out the whole manifesto. The short campaign begins uh, in four weeks' time. It will be all in that, but there are a series of things that I would do. And that's tax raising. That raises money to do other things. Wow. Well, the proper... Uh, you, I mean, are, are you satisfied now with that answer? You look shocked that you actually got an answer. Well, I know. I, know but it was, it, I wasn't shocked that I got an answer. It was the detail of it. I don't often get sort of a lot of detail. And, I, and for you to be prepared to say that you're prepared in a very, very small way to put up taxes, I think is a... a certainly not many politicians say that. Not openly. Not up front. Well, it was not before election. Also goes to that gentleman's point about raising taxes. Very good indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end uh, for this evening. Uh, the next show is the last Wednesday in April. Um, I've, the guest is almost confirmed and he's very good. Uh, I can confirm that the guest for the end of May uh, is Neil Kinnock. Oh, uh, wow, that's great. Very exciting indeed. That's great. I'm going to come to that. Yeah, yeah, come to that. May the 27th, I think. The guest at the end of June is one that I can't announce either, but as long as... They get elected. Um, I can. Well, it'd be an amazing. It'd be. Uh, yeah. Ooh. Got myself into a little bit of trouble ooh, there. But, uh, ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you have such a tease? <laughs> well, as soon as as soon as I can announce them, I'll announce them on Twitter at Matt Ford and obviously on the St James website. Unless you don't, as always, you've been uh, magnificent. Please uh, show your love and respect to the amazing David Lammy. <laughs> Well, there you go, David Lammy. Our next guest on May the 27th is former leader of the Labour Party, now Lord Neil Kinnock. Uh, tickets, as always, are available on the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. Um, depending on what stage you're listening to this, it could be on polling day, it could be afterwards, it could be quite a long time afterwards. So who knows what uh, is currently going on in Westminster. But one of the great things about putting this out as a podcast and doing the live shows, is just getting a real flavour for what politics has been like over the last few years and I fully intend to keep the show running for years and years and years. I think it just gives people a real insight behind because whenever you get involved in these campaigns and I don't know if you feel the same way but often the way that politicians are portrayed in the media simply isn't accurate and a lot of the stuff that's on telly doesn't adequately reflect that and on the radio and in newspapers and I think this serves hopefully as, a, as an antidote to a lot of the cynicism and a lot of the ignorance around politics. So thank you for downloading it. I hope you enjoyed it. The next podcast out features the former leader of the English Defence League, Tommy Robinson. And I have to say, it's an absolute... Well, you be the judge of it. For me, it was a fascinating experience to go through, and he was a fascinating listen. Thanks once again. Enjoy the election campaign. Enjoy the aftermath. ta -ra.